What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. Hey everybody, this is UB. We are back on Choose Inclusion. I'm here as always with Mike and Nina. Hello team. Hey everyone. Hello Ubaldo and Nina, how are you today? Good. Doing really well. You know, it's COVID life. Here we are. Um, which has been exciting. I mean, on one hand, it's given us an opportunity to create a lot more content, which has been really nice. And, you know, we're really excited today uh, to talk with Todd Rose, who's an author. Um, he's written uh, Dark Horse, which is his most recent uh, book. And then he wrote The End of Average, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, First of all, I want to welcome you from the East Coast, Todd. So great to have you. Talk a little bit about, you know, your, just your journey. Because uh, I know it started in the West, but now you've been on the East Coast for 27 years. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, so I've been, um, I'm, I'm here in Massachusetts. I've been here for 20 years. Uh, great. I loved it. But I you know, grew up uh, in, just outside of Salt Lake City. And, uh, you know, it's been a fun, a fun kind of path. I, I, the short version of it is went, um, you know, I grew up in actually a rural, rural part of Utah and, uh, really struggled in school and ended up actually filling out of high school and, uh, got married when I was 19 and, uh, we're still married today. So that's not too bad, awesome. but, um, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> it's like, so I, but, uh, yeah, so ended up going from a high school dropout, uh, working my way back, went to school at uh, night in college, and then ended up getting my doctor from Harvard, where I've been a professor for the last um, 13 years. Wait, 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 wait. Um, you, wait, from and, high, high school dropout to uh, Harvard professor? Seriously? <laughs> well, it's even better than that. When I dropped out, I, I, I like to say dropped out as if I had a choice. They kicked me out um, because I couldn't graduate. <laughs> But it felt it feels like I have more control if I say we, we, we mutually decided it wasn't working. But I had a zero point nine GPA, and so um, it was it was pretty bad. And then it was like uh, after I had to leave, and I, like my girlfriend tells me she's pregnant, and like you know you can imagine in rural Utah that didn't go over very well. And um, <laughs> so you know you find yourself on welfare. We had two kids by the time I was twenty one, and. Uh, just thinking what, what in the world happened to my life and what it's for me, it was um, the insight. And I think it's probably relevant to what we'll talk about today is like the, the journey from that to where I am now is largely one of recognizing the incredible power of fit between an individual and the environment that they're in. And that, you know, we're so used to thinking about talent and contribution as almost being innate. Like people have something to offer. They don't I, look, I'm, you know, end of one, but it's like, I'm the same person. And, and it, in, a, in an environment where it didn't fit with my individuality, it didn't allow me to overcome some of the obstacles I had, it didn't allow me to express my real talents. Like I looked like I didn't have much to offer and in the, with the right fit and, and the right strategies, that, that's very different. So I, I feel like um, 
you know, the thing I'm the most passionate about is recognizing that every single person has something meaningful to contribute. And our job is to create the kind of context that allow that to flourish writ large. Yeah. So Todd, I was wondering if you could just give us a, like, you know, uh, we had read your book, The End of Average, and I think there's just so many good lessons in it, a lot of good historical context as well about kind of how we ended up where we are with a lot of the systemic problems we have um, in the workplace in particular. Um, can you give us a little background on the end of the end of average and what it's about for our listeners? Yeah, so um, my training is in a field called the science of individuality, science of the individual, where um, what has been interesting is for a very long time in research, we would sort of reflexively use groups and we would study groups and we would take the average of everyone in that group in a sample and then we would say, okay, well, what did we find? And we would, we, would, we would publish results and we would say, well, I know it doesn't apply to everybody, but we're just assuming that group averages apply to most people, right? And, and it's kind of shocking how ubiquitous that is. Like, we just think that it means something. And, and um, during my grad school days, I was fortunate to be part of this new field that was emerging um, where as we got access to larger amounts of data on individuals, we started realizing that actually these group averages were failing pretty spectacularly. Like I was originally trained in um, neuroscience and it, you just found this. We, we really thought brain imaging research that was using groups was more or less correct. And we kept finding that like, in fact, the average results that we would get from our data often didn't apply to anyone in the study. Like it was just bizarre. And, um, and so I was watching um, this real revolution take place in, especially in the medical sciences, you know, in genetics and, and cancer research and neuroscience, where we realized that you had to deal with individuality on its own terms. You couldn't just average it away. And I felt like obviously that had something to do, that has something to say about like the rest of the human experience, right? Everything from education to the workplace. But that's, that, those are the places that didn't seem to be making any real progress. And it was really puzzling to me. So I felt like um, one of the, the things that, that, I wanted to contribute was that let's let's do the hard work of trying to, to take that new science and, and make it accessible to a broader public, right? So that it's not just cloistered in academia. So that was the intent behind end of average. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, like I had no idea whether anyone would care. And um, <laughs> like, and then so it became, it was weird that it became like a business bestseller. I was just like, never in my wildest imagination did I think that was going to happen. And um so I've been really grateful that at least it's helped to start a conversation. Um, and it's been fascinating to just watch it kind of like percolate in everything from the tech sector and other workplace environments all the way to like, you know, uh, all over the world, frankly. And, and especially it's been interesting in some of the countries where they are the most rigidly standardized um, have been some of the most fascinating conversations I've had. So. Where did you think it was originally going to hit or what, what like where did you yeah. help so I, I like I didn't really know I felt, I felt like I just had an obligation I was like look um I get bored easier than anyone I know and I was like I can barely read the stuff that I have to read for the science and so I felt <laughs> like maybe maybe part of the problem is is that we're not really trying hard enough to like communicate it um I I thought I thought the easy one would be education which that turned out to be true as well but like I mean the whole push toward personalization made sense. 
Um, I thought I had hoped it would matter in business, but I just didn't, I didn't know. Um, right. And it's just, it's just been like so fascinating to see that like, basically there's something in the air, right? Like we're all recognizing we've lived under this sort of tyranny of a Frederick Taylor scientific management, you know, people are cogs view of the world. And I think we've, we've all bumped up against it in our lives enough to realize that it's just not true and it's not helpful anymore. And so I think that like, it's just giving language to something that we're all feeling. And I think that's partly uh, why it's been successful. Well, and it's interesting. And, and I, you know, you could probably answer this a little better. Sorry, Mike, I just, real, I just, what, what, cause where this is connecting with my head is how, you know, consumer marketing has sort of, has in the last few years taken this very personalized, individualized approach. So on the one hand, you have businesses who are realizing that they have to speak to each individual person in order to sell their stuff. But on the other hand, they're taking the standard of, or, you know, the, the average approach to hiring people to build those products, right? right. Like it's, it's such a weird thing. You're, you, you really, you've captured this nicely. So it, it's funny, like um, the, especially in this space with digital technologies, you've got this weird um, place where, where consumers now recognize, well, hold on, in, in, in most of my experiences, like my individuality matters and everyone knows it. And people go out of their way to try to figure out how to um, create environments that do respect me as an individual. And I, we've gotten so used to it in certain parts of our lives that it feels kind of jarring when you go to another part and it's like, who are you, right? Like, <laughs> like um, and, What's funny is this, so we all know that's the game now. And to your point, what is still like, like it'd be funny if it wasn't so sad is that like these very companies whose job it is to create the most incredibly personalized um, consumer facing thing, they actually go and hire people and do processes in terms of how those things are created in unbelievably um, old school industrial approaches like it's, it's like it's like it hasn't kind of seeped in to realize the very same thing that makes you successful on the consumer side is what would allow your business to just like jet fuel in terms of being far activity activity i love that no no i i that was that was far more relevant to than my question ubaldo but as a, as a follow-up to this whole average uh conversation is like i i hear consistently um, again, we, we help uh, people with disabilities broadly uh, find employment in the Fortune 10,000 space, Todd. And I, I get asked by executives in these organizations <laughs> daily, so, so what, what is it that blind people can do anyway? And, you know, because their, wow. their perceptions, yeah, their perceptions and stigmas over a group of people are you know, to, 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 at, at best average, right? Like they're thinking, oh, well, a blind person can do X, Y, and Z. And there are, th there, there have been um, historically like three main professions for blind people um, over, over the, over the last call or an industrialized time, call it 80 to hundred years. There's been three primary professions for them. And so, you know, the, the stigma and the perception of average is really exacerbated within certain demographics. And so I love the fact that you're saying, no, no, no. Cause, and I tell people all the time, like, hey, I, I've managed seven and eight figure projects over my corporate career, right? Like I, I can really produce at a very high level. And I say it's because of my blindness, not despite my blindness. 
But that yeah. sounds very salesy, and it sounds like it's a one-off. But I, I'm, I'm generally telling people, unless I'm the Uber driver in your car, like there's not much I cannot do. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, this is really, really important. And um, when you look at the history, like the history of average-based thinking is very tied up in our way we've decided to think about talent and human beings. And the, you know, so much of the world we live in now is a legacy of eugenics. And I, they, they took, they saw human individuality and diversity and they said, it must be innate and it must be like some individuality is better than other individuality and thought they were smarter and smart enough to literally put everyone on a bell curve. And it turns out they weren't very smart. And like, what is so fascinating to me is you can either see individuality as a selection problem, which is how we've treated it in the past, right? Like there's a fixed environment and now you're trying to select the best individuals for that environment. But you can actually see individuality as a, as a design problem rather than a selection problem, right? And if you start from the premise that um, everybody has something to contribute, and I think this is 100% true, um, then if what you're looking for is how do I use my environment to create enough flexibility and adaptivity that allows that individuality to shine. And what's so like sad about this, Mike, is like, you think about something like, like, like our technologies can actually go great lengths to remove whatever limitations that, that, that difference brought to the table and allow all the rest of who you are to shine, right? So it's it's like so whenever I whenever people get excited in education, for example, and they're like, we do personalization. The first question I ask is, how are you on accessibility? And they almost always scratch their heads up, what does that have to do? <laughs> Wait, hold on. If, oh. if, if you're not committed to accessibility, you are not committed to personalization. It's garbage. You are not, right? Like, because that's the low-hanging fruit. So yeah, this is like uh, I, Thank you for that, Todd. I so appreciate that. But I, yeah. I say technology is the great mitigator for all of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And it's especially true for people with disabilities. But thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I want to jump back to the uh, the historical context of kind of where this Taylorism, Averagerianism kind of went. I mean, I think like your book really covers it well, going back into the 19th century, quote unquote, science. Uh, of you know why why business why education is run the way it is what I find fascinating about it too though is that how it's kind of created a systemic nature um, for how everyone determines their own value mm -hmm. and how we value ourselves as well so for example um, you know I, I there was just so many parts of your book that I related to but I think one part of it was recognizing as a child of immigrants there is this pressure on us to to fall within the constructs of you know what white cisgendered able-bodied society you know males are supposed to be right and um you know as an immigrant it's like we have to adapt and assimilate and that assimilation is essentially kind of a form of Aryanism. So our sense of value, you know, as a child of immigrants, it was all about getting good grades in school. It was all about becoming that straight A student who then got that perfect SAT score that could then go into an Ivy League school and then get that good job at Goldman Sachs or at that top law firm or whatever it is, right? And, um, 
you know, I think there's just so many missed opportunities because of the systemic problems of saying the narrative for success is, is that one pathway. And, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on like, you know, going from the science to the systemic issues, like what are your thoughts on how that's like progressed over the time up until today and like where we go with that? I mean, that's the thing is, so to me that, the like I sort of get how we got here. I mean, and that was what I was curious about. I was like, like, why did anyone think this was a good idea? Like that's that's the real question. Like why do we think this is okay, right? And it was right. funny to see it. Like like I dug in. It was like oh right. It, it's it's a Belgian astronomer way back when who's like it, you know in astronomy it turns out like you know you're trying to get accurate measurement of of stars or you know planets like it turns out there's a lot of error in any one measurement. And so they figured out pretty quickly that you're better off to average across, you know, 20 different astronomers, their measurement. And as long as it wasn't systematically wrong, like the average was usually closer to the truth. And like this guy, Adolf Ketele, he, he happened to get his hands on the very first uh, census data that was starting to be taken in, in like 18, uh, early mid 1800s. And he, he just starts plotting the size of, no kidding, uh, Scottish soldiers, their chest. <laughs> like with, and he says, well, look at this. this. This looks like a bell curve, just like my astronomical observations that I do. And he said, that, that must mean that just like the, tr- the average score in astronomy is true, that must mean the average of the human beings is true. <laughs> and the rest of it's error. It's like the most bizarre thing. But like, he gets, it just starts taking off. And, and it's weird because people like the uh, physicians at the time were like, that's absurd. It's just ridiculous. But weirdly, <laughs> what, what, what it allowed was um, insurance. So once you realized you, you could amortize risk over a whole population, you could start to talk about averages of certain categories. And that, that added a real value to society. And so people pretty quickly internalized it. And so... You, you take these ideas, which would have stayed as academic, largely, I think, um, between Ketelet and a guy named Francis Galton, who was just, Ketelet was a good guy who was trying to do right. Francis Galton was just a bad guy, like just a really bad guy. Who He was the, one of the fathers of eugenics. He just believed in the superiority of white men who were of aristocratic background. <laughs> it was like, you know, he was obsessed with trying to figure out how how you kept poor people and immigrants from, from ruining the gene pool is really what he was after. And he went to Great Lakes to take this idea of average and realized no one wants to be average. It was about how far you deviate from it that mattered. And so he invents uh, things like percentiles. He invented like correlation and regression and all the tools of statistics, but it was all in service of trying to rank and type people. Um, but, but like the, the sort of how we got to where we're in now is, you know, you, you see this rise of the industrial revolution and, um, and trying to make sense of that. And it was massive, right? Massive, uh, like the technology was not uh, subtle. And, um, it, you know, we had the rise of uh, Frederick Taylor who invented a thing called scientific management. And he, if you want to know what the world we live in now, the best quote I, I can give you was uh, Frederick Taylor said, he was asked to summarize his, his view of work and the world. He said, in the past, man, which he meant, you know, humankind, but, you know, uh, in the past, man was first. In the, fu- in the future, the system has to be first. And he was crystal clear that we work for the system now and that 
Of course, he didn't mean himself, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's everybody else. Everybody else has to do it. And so, so you know, he's realizing that really what you got to do is forget individual talent, just design things on average, um, standardize everything, and and be done with it. And and so, it, like, like everything that, that that the human resource department literally was born out of that. So it's not too surprising that that's one of the last places to really recognize that the emperor doesn't have any clothes, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, everything you're saying is just, you know, when you mentioned poor people and immigrants, immigrants, of course, I was thinking, is he, is he talking about right now? Because, <laughs> you know, none, a lot of this hasn't yeah, changed. I mean, like, changed. that's the same thing, right? <laughs> and no, and, and it, you know, it makes me wonder, right? Like, it, going back all those years, had this idea not not taken hold right like had it just stayed in academia as you mentioned todd like what do you see a different world if things had been if, if this idea hadn't taken as much of a hold as it did so i i feel like um i feel like it was unfortunate that it took hold but that you know buried within us we have humans have a lot of upside, right? We have a lot of potential and we have the potential for bad too, right? We have the potential for becoming very, very ugly with each other. Um, and we're, we love to compare. We love to uh, feel superior. We don't like to feel inferior. Like, I feel like that what this did Wait, have you been in Indian living rooms full of aunties and uncles who are talking <laughs> about their kids? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Because it sounds like you have. <laughs> That's right. Like it's it's pretty crazy, right? And it's like um, so. I think there's a tendency. Like it's good for like neurologically. Like our brains are great at creating types, and we make a lot of decisions um, through comparison. And most of the time, what science does is get us beyond our bias, right? It says, "I know the world looks flat to you, but it's not flat, right?" Now let's see what we can do with it, right? Like this is one time where what we did was we took all the biases and we said you're correct and here's some here's some mathematical algorithms and some and some other things to like just put it on steroids and look i mean some of the, like some of the stuff of industrial age and sanitation there was some real benefit to it but the reason i bring that up is that i think that like to get somewhere where we can go where i, I genuinely believe I, i'm not just trying to sound optimistic i believe we have everything we need right now in our society to create a world where we are equipping every single person to pursue a life of fulfillment and make their best contribution and that if you get the conditions right it will create profound mutual benefit but um the limit to me is not technological it's not economic it's it's the mindset we still hold right if if we're willing to see each other through this old lens of average and, and rank right and 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 we're carrying that assumption over then we will never ever take the leap of faith that it requires and never start to do the hard work of creating environments that enable and empower um we'll continue to fall back on this old way of thinking and no amount of technology no amount of opulence and, and affluence will save you if you have the wrong mindset well but i definitely want to talk about that but well i was going to say hey mike aren't you a flat earther <laughs> Everywhere I walk, the earth is flat. So that's, uh, that's what I know. <laughs> um, the, uh, 
But I so so Todd, I, I I love what you're saying about uh, the 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 optimism, and I I share that. Like I'm I'm a glass you know three quarters full kind of kind of guy. So being blind my whole life, I I, I still live by that notion that uh, we have more in common as a humanity than differences. I still go back to the saying, like, so diversity is man. I mean, like everybody, I think, is bought into, yes, the, the earth is not flat. And yes, our global economy um, is diverse. I think people are buying into that. I still, what you said, though, it goes to my statement of you have to choose inclusion. Like, so you, you have to intentionally, you know, make decisions towards that inclusion component. No, that's 100% correct, right? So, so the problem is <clears throat> that, like, like uh, to, by comparison, so imagine some other crazy idea, like, uh, I don't know, like democracy, right? The idea that, like, everyday people <laughs> could govern themselves. That was an absurd assumption. Like, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about, uh, you know, with the Declaration of Independence and, 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 and the states, that thing. Like the response from England at the time wasn't like, uh oh, we're in trouble. It was like, well, good luck to you because that's not going to work, right? Like it, it was just like, like literally, like either silence to the declaration or it was um, actually like, this is just absurd, right? It, the, the problem is, is that it's not enough. Um, like, Mike, like you're saying, like you have to be intentional about this. And 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 the thing is, is that when we are when we are acknowledging that our old assumptions are wrong and that we believe something else is possible, you can't, uh, this is where when people say I'm data-driven in my decision-making, I say that you're principle-driven and you're data-informed because right now, the Ooh, idea I that-, that. Every, I love that. Because the thing is, is right, like if, 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 if individuality isn't something to sort and rank, it's something to curate and, and, and to the benefit of all of humanity, then you gotta make those intentional decisions to design environments to allow that to happen. But the truth is, is we've never committed to that in the entire history of, of, of humanity, as far as I can tell, in any real uh, systematic way. So to look around and say, well, what evidence do you have that everyone has something to contribute? Well, look, it's not that surprising, right? It's, it's a bit like um, John Stuart Mill, when he wrote probably, the, I think, the best defense of, of women's equality, right, way back when. And, and, and people made fun of him for it. And he said, well, look at women. Uh, they're they're over-emotional. They're all blah, blah. And he said... Okay, show me a society that's ever treated women equally from the beginning and given them the same opportunities. Show me that society where women still aren't performing like men, and then we can talk. But you don't get to like systematically bias your society against groups of people, and then when they don't perform like everyone else, use that as proof that you were correct, right? And so like, right. like exactly. this is that this idea of you gotta be intentional. Like the, the the fact is every single time we have committed to the dignity and worth of every person. And we have committed to that in terms of not just words, but in our deeds, right? In the design of our environments to respect that, it has always turned out better. And now we have a chance as a people to make that the foundation of a new kind of society. Um, and one in which it, like your gain doesn't come at my expense. It truly can be mutually beneficial. But you gotta, you gotta, it's intentional, right? You don't just get it, you can't just say it, you gotta start acting on it. So do you think, because um, you say like now's the time, are, are you saying that because of COVID-19 or what are your thoughts on that? Like, is this the type of situation that's level setting enough that gives us a chance to sort of reboot in that direction you're talking about? 
Yeah, I, look, I think there's two things when I, when, what I mean by it about why time is now. One is the public shock that COVID-19 has created where, where it's usually required when, when you are changing old assumptions, right? Like it right. just, like, because most of the time there's such a um, status quo bias, right? We just don't like change. And, and that's not necessarily wrong, right? Like, I mean, not all change is good, right? <laughs> change can kill you right. too. So, but, but right now, all over the world, old things have been decimated and we have choices to make. We have like, you know, you think about even, for example, um, in higher education. Okay, so we have a thing called the SAT, right? That is literally, it is a bell curve. It, it doesn't have to, it forces every kid onto a bell curve. So rather than say, what does any particular kid actually know and can do, we are literally forcing you just to compare yourself against a hypothetical average. And it is completely nonsensical. We don't do that anywhere else. You don't, you don't give um, surgeons like a test and say, okay, the top 10% are always gonna pass no matter what. And not, not everyone can pass. It's like, either you know how to be a surgeon or you don't, right? And I don't, right. I don't yeah. care that you are. So, so, so that, we now have a whole year where that's not gonna be given. That test is not being given to students and universities are still making admissions. And so it's like, we get to be intentional now. Do we really want that anymore, right? And if that's what we want, then that's what we want. But I, we have a series of choices we get to make as a people now. Um, I, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is one thing I haven't told you is uh, my think tank called Populous. One of the things that we've, um, I think they're pretty innovative at is we've developed a bunch of methodologies around what's called private opinion research. So not just what people will say out loud, but what do they truly believe and desire? And it is pretty shocking. Like most people are deeply fed up with this old zero sum view of success. There's one path, it, it looks the same for everyone. It's not how they want to live their lives. Um, but this vast majority in the United States is where we've done this research. They believe that like 95% of everybody else still wants the old thing, right? So you've got the silent majority who's ready to move on, but they're not, they're not willing to act because they assume everyone else still likes what we have. So I know for sure that the American public in particular is ready for something different. Uh, we have some ways to get around how, how do you socialize the fact that they are a majority. Um, this COVID creates the public shock that you need. But then there's this other aspect of, look, we have the technology and the know-how now, right? It, it, like, like, I'll give you one concrete example. This is, sorry, the longest answer probably you're going to get on your podcast. No, I love but, it. Um, but the, let's take, because one of the things when people say, well, wait a minute, really? Everyone, you can do something like individuality feels like it's chaos and certainly not scalable. That's usually the, the, the gripe. But, but like, so um at, on a personal level so my some of my colleagues in israel ha have been going after this idea of um glycemic index right like look diabetes pre-diabetes stuff is a huge problem worldwide it's a pretty real big problem in, in the u.s we we literally use the glycemic index to tell you how your body's going to respond to different kinds of food but those are averages that's how they that's how we arrived at that so my colleagues um started studying how do individuals respond to different foods like is it like the glycemic set? turns out literally there is not a single person out of the thousands one thousands one thousands of people they've studied that actually respond the way the glycemic index says you should and um they actually were able to use machine learning algorithms and basic technology they created a company called day two and I, I don't have any stock in it, so I'm not promoting it, but I do, I am a user, 
Um, because yeah. so it turns out I, I did it. Um, and, and like for me, the glycemic index was only true less than 40% of the time. And for some things, it was catastrophically wrong. So here's a concrete example. Um, because uh, diabetes, blood sugar issues, uh, metabolic disorders run in my family. So I've always tried to be careful about that. Um, and one of the things a nutritionist told me a really long time ago was pink grapefruit is amazing. It, it has these almost magical properties for like helping to keep blood sugar regulated. Um, so I get my results back. It turns out <laughs> grapefruit is the single worst thing I can eat. It, is, it spikes my blood sugar more than chocolate cake, which is oh crazy. God. Now, did you wife, notice it physically? Oh, yeah. The problem is, is I, I was having grapefruit almost every day for breakfast my, most Ooh. of my adult life. And, and I'm wondering why am I- Chocolate cake? Yeah, that's what I told my wife. I said, the, the takeaway is that I should have more chocolate cake, right? And she, she said, I'm a bad, a bad scientist, right? But, um, but, but, but the thing is, is like, here we, here we are. I'm, I'm dutifully following the advice that on average is supposed to work. It is catastrophically bad for me. This is no kidding. Um, once I got this personalized information and I decided to like base my um, entire uh, nutrition and, and, and working out and everything for a year based on this, and no kidding, I lost 52 pounds and I'm in wow. absolutely the best shape of my adult life. My blood sugar is completely regulated. And it, all it was was like, I have an app that tells me it doesn't really matter. Like, it, like it, it doesn't matter if it works the same for Mike you know, or, or you hear anything, it doesn't matter, right? Like all that matters is what is right for me. And because of our technology, our know-how, we can scale that for dirt cheap to every single person who wants it. So I feel like we've got this moment where the, 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 the limitation is really our mindset and our will to, to put it into action. That's awesome. I love it. What a, uh, what a, what I'm so honored to have you as a, as a guest. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I've really enjoyed listening to uh, what you do and how you articulate this, Todd. Can you give some, I'd love to hear in this, this optimism. So I'm all about the optimism too. I, I, I live in that space, but I, I, I'd love to give, so we're always trying to give our, our listeners some concrete ways of helping their organization. How can you help organizations, again, make, make it easier to be intentional with inclusion, can you can you help our can you give a, a solid, you know, tactical thing to allow our listeners to move on today? Yeah. Um, so for me, and this will seem like a little evasive, but I, I, I genuinely mean it as my answer. Um, in all the companies I've studied around this, about who does it well and who doesn't, to me, there is no substitute at all for really like digging into this mindset like and i'll give you some other concrete stuff too i promise mike but like the um if you stop and really have the conversation about your values and about what like what you're thinking here like so much of what we do by default it isn't necessarily intended to be bad but it, it is absolutely the obstacle uh, to doing this well and what i what i've noticed is that like it's hard to find two two good examples that are exactly the same and maybe that's not that surprising right because if we're talking about like it's not surprising that like if individuals are so diverse good companies don't have to be the exact same right like and so what you see over and over again though is like an incredible commitment to the real value of inclusion 
not just because it's like the moral thing to do, although it is, right? Like, but because you do recognize like the value that, that you are losing by not truly being inclusive. And so if that exists for real, then what you see is people taking real efforts to figure out the things, the obstacles they need to remove, the things they could be more proactive about to making an environment that's more inclusive, more productive, more creative. And, um, and so what, what I've seen over and over again is when people then try to go for the cookie cutter, like, okay, I say I, I believe in this, I'm going to copy exact so-and-so, it almost never works. So the, the, it, if I'm running a company today, like I am getting at genuine underlying values, I want to know because the, the, the most dangerous thing you have is when someone learns that this is the right thing to say, but they genuinely don't believe it, right? Because you can go through the motions. You think about accessibility. Do you know how easy it is to go through the motions on that and pretend that you're doing something meaningful, right? You can check all the boxes and not create a truly inclusive environment. Um, so, well, Mike, so for Mike me, knows that. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Um, and then for me, the, the, the other thing is, is like the, the, the question I'll always ask is when people say, well, we're doing this. I say, okay, great. So who's doing it? And I know that sounds obvious that like, you know, more inclusion in the actual process, but it's kind of shocking, right? Like, how, like, it's like, we're, we're doing inclusion to people and, you know, like, you know and, and it's, 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 uh, like the thing that's done really bad and, and uh, but like the, the places where I've seen it work the, the, the most is when leaders recognize that truthfully, they're probably part of the problem. Like no matter how well intended they are, like have the conversation about values, signal what you can signal is the genuine commitment and then make the space for people to be able to bring their experiences to the table and help, help think about how we move forward in a more inclusive way. That's awesome. Well, I love that. And to me, uh, you know, real quick, it, it reminds me of how many times that I stopped asking the question to um, executives that I meet with, Todd. So, uh, so how many blind people do you have working for your organization anyway? Because um, either it's an uncomfortable silence or I hear, oh, we have this one. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even say that. Like, that's just not something to admit, right? Because uh, to your point, that's part of the problem. If, you, if you're okay with saying we have this one, imagine if you say, hey, we have this one woman that works for us, or we have this one African-American that works for us, right? So, Dude, can, can I say, too, one of the things, like, I think if, I, if I'm just being, like, purely selfish as trying to find a competitive advantage as a company, one of the legacies of, of this rigid industrial system we created of type and rank is that we got so obsessed about the, the narrow way we think about talent, that these companies all fish in the same pond, right? They're all going after the same stupid thing of like, yeah. what prestigious school did you go to? What were your SATs? What grade did you get? And of course, it ends up looking really homogeneous, right? Of course. And, and so, but the problem is, is if you step back and realize a fundamental truth, which is like, like there is an incredible amount of talent and potential that is latent in it all across humanity, then if you you were just looking at the best way to find most in the least uh, costly uh, approach. Like, just realize that all these people that we've talked about as like less than in some way, you're just wrong. And like, if, if you realize that you have the technology and the ability to create environments that create far better fit, there is just a world of incredibly talented people out there just waiting to be happy. 
Hey Nina, how long has Todd worked for us? Did you hire him? I love it. Yeah. Like, I think he's uh, hit every single talking point I've had for the last two years. Except he's hundred percent. Yeah. So hey Todd, oh just know that uh, toaster is on its way with the VIP logo on it. Okay, man. <laughs> I'll take. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, I I really do think we uh, our audience and our listeners have walked away with a lot of good information that they can take back to their teams. Um, so do you have any uh, things you want to plug, or how can people find you if they have questions, things like that? Oh, look, I, no, I, I think I'll, I'll plug your work. How's that? Because I think that, like, <laughs> like what, what, what I would say is this, like, if we just look at it from a purely scientific basis, not a wishful thinking, not um, some utopian fantasy, just the cold hard facts is that we have so profoundly underestimated the capabilities of most human beings um, that it's remarkable we've made any progress as a society. And that, like, <laughs> that, that, even if all you want is to be more profitable, right? You, you, if you're a leader of a company right now, <laughs> we're living in a time where the moral imperative and the economic imperative have converged. That environments that are truly, truly, truly inclusive, that, that go out of their way to create better fit for more people are, are more moral environments, right? They are environments that foster better belonging. They are uh, environments that, have people who don't want to leave, right? You're the, 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 and they are just more profitable, more creative, more productive environments. So like, you don't have to choose, right? Between doing the right thing and doing the right thing for your business, but it does require intentionality. Yeah, that's Love huge. What, one thing, like, like one sentence, Todd, that, that you might have, because you know, what make, this makes me think of, um, and, and a great way to end the conversation, it makes me think of the, the, the people that who, because you talk about we, this is a mindset change that we all have to make. So for each individual person who literally thinks of themselves in the average, right? How, what, what's like one or two sentences to help them start their mindset journey, their mindset change journey? Yeah. So um, actually that's will sound like a plug and I genuinely don't mean it, but one of the things that I explain in Dark Horse, and the reason I wrote that is um, in End of Average, <laughs> by the way, this is my, you're like, in one or two sentences, I would give you a whole long answer. Um, right. I'm a, re, I'm a reformed <laughs> academic, so this is, Love it. This is a, you're lucky it's not three hours long, but like the, um, in End of Average, I had profiled companies that I thought were doing a pretty great job dealing with individuality. And, and, and in doing that, I had ended up getting to know employees at some of those places that were just they were, they, they had managed to like, they were so fulfilled by what they did and they had these really interesting non-traditional backgrounds. And, and I wondered like, it's one thing for a company to create a context that allowed them to thrive, but, but how did they get there? How did they find their way? And, and so I ended up, um, me and my colleague, we ended up conducting this, this dark horse project, just trying, we studied hundreds and hundreds of people from all walks of life, uh, who had these non-traditional backgrounds who, who had achieved success. And, one of the, um, I was intrigued by like how they did it and, 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 you know, was it just like a certain way of mastering stuff or whatever, and they had a certain kind of personality. What, what you found really quickly was that without fail, the people who figured this out were people who uh, got away from seeing themselves through society's lens, right? They, especially with regard to success, 
they, they stopped chasing someone else's definition and started focusing on trying to understand authentically what brought them fulfillment. And what what the dark horses did was they 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 it turns out they knew a handful of things that makes the pursuit of fulfillment not wishful thinking, not follow your bliss off a cliff, but actually a, a reliable roadmap to a life of excellence. And so I say all that because my answer to what I would do next it, it, to break the sort of mindset is this. You've been taught to think of yourself through a lens of ability that is actually average, right? It is like, what am I good at? And, and realizing that the tests they'll give you to figure that out stuff are always based on comparing you to somebody else, right? And instead, where, where you want to build your foundation for your identity um, and, and your path to a good life is around the things that motivate you, the things that matter most to you. And what, what if from the dark horse work is, is any indicator, you're going to find out in a hurry how unbelievable and unbelievably personal that really is. Uh, we're just all motivated by a wide range of things. And getting in touch with that is the fastest way to reveal the failure of average-based thinking and get you in touch with your individuality. And you can build on that. And, and I think that like nothing is a substitute for understanding what matters most to you in life because you could be good at something without that, but you are never going to be fulfilled. And I think right now what we're all chasing and what the real promise of modern society is is that you no longer have to cheat. Like you can live a fulfilling life and actually be part of a productive economy, right? Those, those aren't, uh, that's a false choice now. Love it. What an honor. Thank you so much, Todd. Uh, my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Todd. Uh, thank you, team. Uh, I cannot wait to uh, post this out there for everybody because I think it's so freaking timely. So yeah, thank you very much, Todd. Always a pleasure. We'll uh, post links to your website and the books and all that kind of stuff so that everybody can get out there and we can all start changing mindsets. I cannot wait. Very cool. Hey, thanks a lot. I was really, honestly, like, I really enjoyed this. is the highlight of my day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Todd. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at chooseinclusion.